you do not have to be a Christian for very long before you will enter a season in life that feels very difficult to you, that feels very frustrating, that feels spiritually confusing. Let me describe it to you and see if it sounds familiar. First thing that you'll notice is that in this season it feels dry. It just doesn't seem like you're able to receive the kind of spiritual nourishment you need. You used to maybe enjoy prayer or find prayer something that you could get sustenance from, and now it's just hard. It's dry. You used to love reading the Bible, and now it no longer tastes like honey. It's more like sawdust. It's dry. And not only that, but you, you feel a certain sense of being alone. It's as if God, who used to be so present to you, is, is now no longer present to you. It's as if he's abandoned you. And, and so you can come even into a worship service like this, sitting in the midst of God's people, and you can still feel very alone. And not only will you, it, it does it feel dry and, and alone, it feels like you'll be tempted. You're like, man, I thought by this point in my spiritual life, I thought these temptations would actually become less intense. Why is it right now in this season they're actually more intense and more fierce? I feel more tempted by them than ever before. What is going on? And it's very spiritually confusing. Because you're like, it wasn't that long ago when, when the heavens were open to me, when I knew God's voice, when his calling was clear, when his presence was present to me, and when his anointing was on me. What, how did I get here? What has happened that has brought me into this place? Have any of you ever experienced that? If you haven't, you will. <laughs> I look back over my adult life as a Christian and I see at least four seasons like that. One was associated with a medical crisis in my life. Another came as part of a relational crisis in my life. One came about because of a vocational crisis in my life. And one, oddly, came at a time when everything outwardly in my life seemed to be all well, and yet suddenly there was a complete removal of the sensed presence of God. And I would lead the same Bible studies like I had led for years, and they wouldn't even make it to the first row, and even I knew they weren't working. And so I come to you as a pastor, and I just want to give you so much perspective on that kind of season, if you're in it now, or if you will be. I just want to give you uh, practical help. I want to impart to you hope. With God as our helper and the Bible as our guide, I want to try to understand what is going on when you have a season like that in your life and how do you get through it. Let's look at this together. Now, it turns out, as you, as you study the Bible, that this kind of season is not some crazy aberration. It turns out that it is part, an integral part, of the way God prepares someone to serve him. It's, it's how he prepares you. It's how he prepares me. If we had time this morning, I could take you person by person through the Bible and show you that is true. It's true in the life of Joseph, in the life of Moses, in the life of Esther, 
and Mary and Peter and Paul and King David and the children of Israel. In fact, I don't think there's a character in the Bible about whom we have enough information where this would not be true. So let me lay this out for you if I would. It seems that God's method of preparing us to serve him comes in three parts. And the first part is calling. The first part is the calling. And you see that in the life of Jesus, which we'll be studying this morning. Look with me, if you would, at Matthew 3, verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened. It's like a sliding glass door pulled back, and suddenly there was an immediate interchange between the kingdom of God and Jesus here on earth. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. The very power and presence of God has come down from heaven and is resting on him. And then, this is quite amazing, I've never heard the audible voice of God. I know some have, but Jesus did, and so did the people who were standing there that day. A voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And Jesus is standing in the water, drenched with the water of the Jordan and the Spirit of God and the affirmation and blessing of the Father. And he's receiving his call because in these words, God is actually alluding to a a verse from the Psalms and from the prophets that say, you will be a king and you will be a suffering servant. And Jesus knows, I have my calling now. I've had this amazing calling. Have you ever had that time where God was so present to you and you're like, I get it, Lord. I know you love me. I know you've given me this to do in my life. I'm ready. I want to do it. You've had that calling, that first stage. Well, let me skip over now and give you the third stage. The third stage is is not calling, it's contribution. This is where you actually go about and do the work that God gave you to do back there at the moment of calling. Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And a few verses later, we see that he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing people, people who are demon-possessed, having seizures, paralyzed people, boom, they're no longer paralyzed. And crowds are coming. There's this movement of the power of God through his life to be the king and the suffering servant that God called him to do. He's now making his contribution and doing that very thing. Now, we would all love it if God's process had two parts. Amazing anointed calling and amazing anointed contribution. Wouldn't that be amazing if we could just go from this moment of glory to this moment of glory? Too bad it doesn't work like that. Here's what God does. God puts a middle stage into the process. You go from calling to conditioning. It's like on draft day for the NFL. On draft day, everybody's happy. That college athlete who spent his whole life learning the game of football is told, you are awesome. We waited and tried to pick you. And he gets the cap with his new team's logo on it, and there's the backdrop behind with the team's logo on it, and he's sitting there with the coach, and the coach is saying, this is amazing, this person's a game-changing player, we couldn't wait to get him, and they're showing highlights from his game films. That's the calling. That's draft day. And he can't wait until the day he runs through the chute out into the stadium on opening day. Guess what? There's something in between. There's this little bitty thing called training camp 
where you got to go twice a day and you sweat your brains out and you wake up so sore the next morning you can barely move. But it's the only way you get ready, conditioned to play in the NFL. And God has a similar means. He says, you go from calling and then I need you to go through conditioning. Right after the baptism, would you look at this? Matthew 4, verse 1. He comes up. You're loved. It's awesome. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, I read this text for years, and you know what I thought it said, even though the words are really clear? Then Jesus was dragged by the devil into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It doesn't say that. It says he was led by the Spirit of God. The same Spirit who came down on him in anointing power and intimacy is the same Spirit who drives him into the desert. And let's use the word desert, friends. I grew up out east, and wilderness meant lush green forests and Bambi running through. This is Judean wilderness. It looks like the surface of the moon. It's dry. It's dusty. It's rocky. And that's where the Spirit of God sends Jesus to be conditioned for a greater contribution to come. This is the step we want to leave out, but we can if we want to be used. And it's there in that place of conditioning that a test comes to us. Now, every person here is different, so your test will be a little different than my test. But let me tell you two things about your test that I know are true. The first thing is, it will come when you're vulnerable. Matthew 4, verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Could this be the greatest understatement of all time? Okay, Jesus is lonely and he's hungry. He's thirsty and he's hungry. He's wiped out by the heat and he's hungry. He's in a solitary confinement of soul and he's hungry. Why is it that the devil doesn't come to him on day one when he's still wet with the waters from the Jordan? Why is it that he waits till day 11 and 17 and 23 and then finally 40 he pounces? Because he waits until Jesus is desperately vulnerable. And your test when you're conditioned will come when you're vulnerable. The second thing you need to know about your test is that it will sound so reasonable. It's not going to sound like crazy talk. Maybe some other time in your life it would, but when you're vulnerable, it's going to sound so reasonable. And Satan comes to him in verse 3 and says, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Who do you think gave you the power to turn this stone into bread? God, why wouldn't he want you to use that power? He gave it to you. If you keep on like this, you're, with this crazy fasting, you're going to starve to death. Do you think God would want you to die? You're his beloved son. Have you not read God helps them who help themselves? See what I'm saying? What's going on inside your head is going to sound so reasonable. But that's how you get tested in this time of conditioning. Now, what is Satan's goal when you are in the desert with conditioning? He wants you, listen to this, he wants you to forget your calling so you will forfeit your contribution. Listen to that again. He wants you to forget your calling so that you will forfeit your contribution. He knows full well you're called by God and you are a force. And God is going to use you to bless and touch and heal people in amazing ways. Sometimes humble, but often just powered by God. He doesn't want this to happen. So while you're down there, he's going to try to pull you away and make you forget your calling. So what he's going to do is make you self-focused. So you're no longer remembering God's voice. You can't even feel the waters of baptism anymore. You can't hear the voice of God. You think God's left you on the rock pile to die. And it's there that he's going to make you self-focused. So you think, man, God's not taking care of me. 
God doesn't really love me like he said. I got to worry about self-promotion. I got to worry about self-preservation. I got to worry about self-gratification. That's Satan's goal. What's God's goal? God's goal is that he will exponentially multiply the contribution through you when you come up out of the desert. The same Spirit of God that led you into the desert is going to bring you up out of the desert. And if you'll come up as an obedient person who's held on to God, when you get here, you will have an anointing and a power unlike any you've ever had. And God will be able to trust you with that. That's what God's goal is. And that's why he brings us through conditioning. There's something that happens in the hot sun of the desert that it bleaches out this self-focus that we all have. I remember back in the uh, 90s, we were meeting over at Glenbard West, and I was in a desert time. And I was so desperate during the service, I couldn't get anything from it. And I was just going, God, would you just throw me a lifeline here? Would you give me some hope and encouragement? And I thought, I'm going to go for prayer. We have people who line up on either side of the room for prayer. I'm going go to go to one of them. And I looked over that day, and I noticed that there was a woman named Penny. Some of you long-timers will remember Penny Thurman. I picked her out because I thought, you know what? That woman has a strong prophetic gift. She's able to hear from the Lord. I'm going to go to her, and she's going to give me a great word from the Lord, which I so desperately need. I went up. I said, Penny, I'm struggling. I just don't know what to do. Would you pray for me? She laid her hand on my shoulder blade, and she said, the Lord wants to do so much through you, and he will once there's so much less of you. Can I get a second opinion? Is there another prayer minister around here? But you know what? Under the sting of that prophetic truth, she was saying something to me. You know what? You're still actually kind of self-focused. And I didn't want to hear that, but it was true. One reason I was so distraught and I was so deserted was because my plan for my life was not working out my way. And she turned me in a Godward direction. That's what happens in the desert. There's a man in our congregation, he's been in the desert for the past year, and I knew I was speaking on that this week, and I said to him, would you just send me an email, and just tell me what the desert's been like for you. And I, I want to read from his email, because I think it shows you what happens in the soul of a person who obeys the Lord out in the desert. He said, my dreams have been dashed. My temporal hopes languish. My view of myself is being crushed, and yet... God. I love that sentence. And yet, God. God has enabled me to gradually embrace the dying to self and through that to choose life, to choose God as my nourishment. And that's been enough. And he finishes this way. He says, one thing I've noticed as the desert continues is that it feels increasingly less like a desert. I think my eyes have been opened to the oases along the way that I would not have seen previously. And I'm so grateful. Here's a man who's going to come up out of that desert led by the Spirit of God and have a greater spiritual contribution to make than he's ever made. And you can too. Friends, this pattern is over and over and over in the Word of God. Think about David. David is the runt of the litter. He's the last one anybody's thinking of. And God passes by all his brothers and says, you come up, you run of the litter. I have a plan for you. I have a leadership gift for you. And I have the anointing of the prophet Samuel for you. And you know what? That was when he was 17 years old. When did his contribution start where he's fully reigning over Israel and Judah? Age 30. What happens between 17 and 30? I'll tell you what. He's thought crazy. People are trying to kill him. He's living in a cave. The only people that he's leading are the losers, the bankrupt, the malcontent, and the people in trouble with the law. 
That's his kingship. And he gets, you know what happens to him though in that cave? He learns there's one God. Psalm 62. My soul find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He's my fortress. I will not be shaken. And David is one of the very few kings who stays true to Yahweh from start to finish. Solomon, his son, he didn't have that cave time. You know where he spends his young developing years? In the palace swimming pool, watching diplomats come in. And so when he gets to the kingship, because he hasn't had that self-bleached out of him, he immediately thinks, strategic diplomatic move would be to marry the daughter of Egypt's pharaoh so that Egypt will never invade me. And then she comes to him and says, you big, strong hunk of manhood, I would just love to worship the gods like I had back home. And the whole thing spirals out of control. And he loses his fidelity to Yahweh because he hasn't been tested. So can I say to you, if you're in a desert or you're going into one, don't fight it and don't fear it. Because God has something good for you in the desert. I look back over the the deserts that I've been in, and you know, I have to honestly say, God has done more in my soul through those than through any spiritual discipline I've chosen. He's taught me more about how to be a pastor in the desert than through any book I was assigned to read. Because if you come in my office and you go, I'm in a desert, I don't know what to do. I trust you because I've been there. I am not going to glibly tell you, oh, you ought to read the Bible a little more. Do you see that God has something good for you in the desert? You don't need to fight it. You don't need to fear it. You can stop railing against God and you can start receiving from God. You're going to come up out of that desert and you're going to be more anointed than ever. You go, well, why did Jesus need this? I get that I have to have self bleached out of my soul. Why did he have to go through this? Hebrews 5. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. You know what I think he learned? I think he learned the spiritual power he had he could never use to make his own life easier, only to obey God. You know, he actually did have the power to turn rocks into bread. He did it and fed 5,000 hungry people, and they immediately go, oh my word, we've never seen anything like this. We're going to make him king. But because that was not obedience to God's will, he said no, and he left them and wouldn't let them do that. When he got into the ultimate test of his life, when he, he knew he had the spiritual power to, to, to call 10,000 warrior angels to lift him, airlift him out of this situation so he could avoid the pain, he chose obedience. Where did he learn that obedience on which your salvation and my salvation hangs? He learned it in the desert. And so will you. And so will I. Now how will we get through the desert? We have to hold on to God's word. Matthew 4, verse 4. When Satan tempts him, Jesus answers, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's how you make it through the desert where there's no other food. Look what he says in verse 7. He doesn't get in long arguments with the devil. He just says, it is also written. Verse 10, it is written. Jesus hangs on to the objective truth of God's revealed word and says that is what's going to get me through. 
When I feel abandoned, when I feel desolate, when the hot breath of Satan is on my neck, I will cling to the truth that I am God's beloved, that I do have a call to be a king and a suffering servant. And whatever God has given you to do and call he's placed on your life, you hang on to that. Don't lose in the desert what you heard in the river. Some of you, deserts are harder than they need to be because you haven't fully received and taken in that God says to you, you are my beloved. You're my beloved son. I'm crazy about you. You're my beloved daughter. I have such a good plan for you. You can't imagine how happy you make me. That's a game changer. One time Karen and I were talking what we would want on our epitaph. I don't know how we got onto that. And uh, it took me a while to figure it out, and I finally told her, here's what I want. He believed God loved him, and that changed everything. And then chisel in the name and the date. Friends, do you know that God has a calling on your life, that he loves you, that he sees you as a person to make a contribution to others in this world, that there's no promise of his that will fall short for you? Will you hang on to his word to you when you're in the desert and you can no longer hear or see what you used to? Hang on to God's word. Finally, I just want to say this. When you are called by the Spirit of God to go down into the desert, here's what you're going to find out. You get there, and it's barren, and it's dry, and it's rocky, and you look around, and you find out, oh, there's someone else here. Jesus is here. He's been here. He's never going to take you anywhere he hasn't been first. He's never going to take you anywhere where he is not. You may not have as robust a sensed presence of him with you, but he'll be right here in the desert. Say, Jesus, help me with my temptations. You, you, you know how to get over these. Help me pass the test. Help me come back up out of the desert with even greater spiritual power than I've ever had, knowing that you can trust me with it because I've learned obedience through what I've suffered. That's what he has for you. Oh, friends, as I've been praying for you this week, I just want to give you perspective and hope. Do you know that your time in the wasteland is never wasted? No, no, your pain is part of the plan, and your desert is on the way to your destiny.